Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, the uh, beginning of a long weekend, I hope for most of you. Definitely is for me, and I am so looking forward to it. I am definitely in need of a three-day weekend. Uh, It's been a long week for me, but, you know, these things happen. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. You can also find this and previous episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidence-based errata, E-R-R-A-T-A dot com. And generally episodes go up sometime on Sunday. So let's start off tonight with a story about another one of my favorite animals. Uh, a coworker actually asked me the other day what my favorite animal was, and I didn't even mention cats. Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about. I, of course, started with crows and uh, cephalopods, octopi, and uh, or octopus, I should say, even though I enjoy saying octopi, it's not really right. Uh, and squid and things like that. And then, of course, because he didn't apparently know about them, I told him about capybaras, which are just the most delightful thing ever. If you have never been to the Tumblr page, yes, I know, but uh, the Tumblr page for animals sitting on capybaras, uh, you should do that, and then you should come back and thank me. Because <laughs> it's just about the cutest thing that ever existed on the internet. But again, tonight we are going to be talking, uh, our first story is going to be about cats. Now, as I have alluded to, I like cats. And, you know, I like all animals, really. I prefer, though, to own cats and to love other people's dogs. Uh, So I know some great dogs that are regular parts of my life, but they do not come home with me, and I am okay with that. (laughs) But this story is actually about a more exotic cat. So a recent article in The Atlantic highlights efforts to track and observe fishing cats in the city of Colombo in Sri Lanka. Now, I had never heard of these adorable felines before reading this story, and if you haven't seen any, as I suspect you haven't, you should, when you get a chance, go to the Facebook page. I've actually linked to uh, the website for the project studying them. The link is a little bit uh, generic looking, but it should link right to the uh, fishing cat Uh, tracking project, and there's lots of great pictures there of them. So, uh, and that should be available right now or at any time. So, Anya Ratnayaka, a conservationist working for an environmental nonprofit, hadn't been paying too much attention when the goldfish in a pond at the office building, at her office building, started to disappear. But when the dragon koi, or whiskered Japanese carp, began to disappear, the landlord decided to put up some cameras because each of those fish was worth around $65 a piece. So he wanted to figure out who was stealing his rather expensive, uh, pretty fish. And so after that, uh, Retnayaka actually was given some of the footage from those uh, cameras that were put up and she was able to see a video of a large cat with black spots, compact ears, and burly shoulders descending down to the pond to fish for delicious midnight snacks. It turns out serendipitously, that she is actually one of the few experts in the world on fishing cats, of which this was unmistakably a member. And so these cats are different from others in the fact that they actually love water, uh, hence the name fishing cats. They traditionally live in swampy, reedy wetlands uh, that spread across the land from India to Malaysia and are located throughout the sort of jungle uh, wetlands of that area of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, 
And so they traditionally are great swimmers and uh, they do swim even in the city, uh, as we will find out. And so they are great swimmers. They have partially webbed feet and short rudder-like tails. And they are also great divers. <laughs> they dive like a champion, uh, catching fish from the uh, diving from the riverbank into rivers. And they make uh, these sort of soft, grumbly chirps that actually sound a little bit like duck quacks. <laughs> um, and so that video, recorded back in 2015, was the first documented evidence that the cats had been learning how to adjust to an urban landscape as the wetlands that they call home are unfortunately uh, increasingly under pressure from development. So uh, Colombo is apparently expanding at a very rapid rate. And so animals that once had pretty big habitats suddenly need to try and figure out what to do. That first cat she named Mizuchi after a mythical Japanese water dragon. And since 2015, Retnayaka has been finding and tracking a small, scattered population within the city as they manage to move under cover of darkness and have learned to survive urban living. And they're doing rather well for themselves. The caller data showed a very comfortable cat, Retnayaka said, referring to Mizuchi. He knew what he was doing. He had a set path. He never veered out of it. When she first began to study Mizuchi, she actually replenished the fish in the pond for him to continue to come back. It worked for a while, but then he stopped coming. Soon after, she actually got a call from the city's wildlife department <laughs> because someone had called about an angry fishing cat that was stuck in a, draining, in a drainage pipe. Apparently, he had gotten fat enough on those fish that he no longer was able to escape from that pipe. <laughs> now, uh, eventually, Mizuchi's GPS collar did break off. Um, and he continued to pop up in pictures for a while, but, um, unfortunately he hasn't been seen in the last two years. Retnayaka, however, believes that he's still alive, uh, just keeping a lower profile. If he'd stayed in the city, in the areas where he was known to inhabit, those are really populous areas. And so she believes that if he had been killed in that area, somebody would have found the body and notified her because they know um, that she is an expert. And so she thinks that he's either lying low or uh, maybe even left the city and went back to the jungle. Now, there are 10 other cats roaming the streets of Colombo currently. And uh, part of the reason that they might be doing okay is the fact that Colombo features a series of spacious canals that allow the cats to traverse the city with relative ease. They've become something of a legend in the city, many calling them Horapusa, or thief cat, because of their love of pondfish, uh, but unfortunately also kittens, squirrels, small birds, and rats. That reputation has not served them very well. In villages, they are often killed or blinded while trying to steal chickens uh, or are mistaken for leopards at a distance. Now, what is interesting in an overview is that some researchers actually are starting to think about the fact that Animals that manage to adapt to city life are only the smartest of the species, and thus urban animals might be evolving to be more intelligent than their rural counterparts. Of course, part of the problem with studying this is how exactly do you determine intelligence among different species? And so this is an ongoing and uh, rather new uh, wrinkle for thinking about how to look at animal behavior and animal intelligence. Now, getting back to the fishing cats, Ratnayaka is 
unfortunately not particularly optimistic about their long-term survival in urban areas, unless something is done to keep the city at least somewhat wild. The things I'm suggesting don't mean that you have to clear a bunch of buildings and make sure people don't go into the wetlands, Ratnayaka says. I'm saying very simple things, like grow some plants on the sidewalk, grow some trees on the pavement so the birds can come and sit. And so uh, once they finish doing their observations of the urban uh, fisher cats, with fishing cats, what they're going to do is compare that data with uh, a colony of fishing cats that are in a more uh, traditional wetland uh, situation. And then they are going to try and figure out exactly what the changes are and what ways they can propose to make it easier for these urban cats to consider to continue to be able to use the city and to survive in the city. Um, unfortunately, a lot of fishing cats are now being turned in uh, to various uh, wildlife conservation uh, organizations once they have been hit by cars or, again, have been blinded, things like that. And so uh, it's it's a real worry that these animals are going to be really badly impacted in the long term by urbanization and that, you know, having a few cats be able to figure out how to use the city isn't really going to be enough to uh, provide a stable base for the population. And so they really do need to find some ways to uh, integrate these cats into this growing uh, metropolis. But Jim Sanderson, who is a small cat expert and one of Retnayaka's mentors, actually has hope for this. He's hoping to mirror the success of the Ieromoti cat in Japan. And so they are endemic to a small island, uh, but that small island is rapidly urbanizing. So the government has actually made a concerted effort to make sure that people are aware of the cats and that they are protected. They have pictures of them on the sides of buses. They've apparently actually made topiary in the shape of the cats. Uh, they've done a whole bunch of things. They've created uh, tunnels underneath the uh, streets so that the cats can cross streets without being hit by cars and they've made a real concerted effort and so he's hoping that maybe in Colombo they can do something like that. There's no initiative yet that says okay we're going to build a landscape that accommodates fishing cats he noted. So far it's the other way. Well we need storm drains then the cats take advantage of them but we can create these idyllic landscapes for both animals and humans if we just do a little bit. And so they also hope that one day the cats could even be a draw to the city, giving back while enjoying a bit of security in a world that is increasingly urbanizing and pushing into areas that were once pristine jungle habitats. So hopefully, uh, this will uh, come to some sort of fruition and these adorable little kitties will continue to be able to do their thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm really hopeful that they will continue to be able to uh, fish and swim and do all those other not terribly cat-like things. <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay. Now... As I mentioned, more and more researchers are beginning to seriously study how cities are affecting wildlife of all kinds. And so a recent special issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B featured 15 new research papers that show that A. Cities frequently alter evolution by natural selection. B. Species are adapting to cities worldwide. And C. New commensal species, those that live alongside humans, have arisen in response to the environmental demands and challenges imposed by urbanization. These papers greatly advance our knowledge of urban evolutionary biology, says Mark Johnson, an associate professor of biology at the University of Toronto, 
Mrs. Sagwa, uh, and de- director of the Center for Urban Environments. These are the same evolutionary mechanisms first identified by Charles Darwin more than 150 years ago, and the findings from these studies will be increasingly important as more and more of the world's population flocks to urban environments. It's pretty remarkable. For years, biologists ignored cities, seeing them as anti-life, and only recently biologists began to realize that cities are agents of change, driving evolution of organisms living around us and even some living on us. And uh, so that's actually something that I need to read some more about, but maybe we will do a, uh, I will do some research and at some point we'll probably do a show on uh, the microbes that share our, uh, (laughs) that are in our skin and in our guts and things like that. Um, I have a friend who's really into the connection between um, the uh, your gut microflora and your health. Uh, and so I am really interested in looking more into that and figuring out uh, what exactly is going on and what we can do to improve it. And so that is definitely something I do want to look into. Oh, and um, while I'm thinking about it, just as a programming note, next week I will be uh, actually having a live interview in the studio. And so I will be interviewing a rocket scientist. So uh, definitely, if you are interested in physics or uh, computer modeling or anything like that, you should definitely uh, stay tuned next week, Um, or you should definitely tune in next week, I should say. (laughs) Okay, Uh, but getting back to this particular uh, set of papers... The species examined run the gambit from zooplankton in freshwater ponds and lakes to burrowing owls, which are adorable. (laughs) Um, Yes, again, if you've never seen pictures of of burrowing owls, what have you been doing with your life? Um, But you should definitely do that because they're really cute. And so a team of Belgian researchers found that the zooplankton Daphnia magna Uh, which is found both in urban ponds and in rural ponds, that the the, uh, species found in urban ponds are actually better able to adapt to the stress of warmer waters than their rural counterparts. And they suggest that this is likely because, well, urban areas are notorious heat sinks. They are generally much warmer uh, than surrounding countryside because asphalt is not... uh, a good thing when it comes to not basically completely and utterly sucking all of the heat out of the sun and then radiating it right back uh, at you. Um, We, uh, there's a whole, there's also a whole show to be done about the uh, problems with uh, the way that we create cities and solutions that we really should Uh, be working on to mitigate some of those really bad decisions we've made over the years. And one of those huge bad decisions is the use of black tar asphalt. Um, But anyways, again, getting back to the actual story. uh, So there is those uh, zooplankton. And um, also researchers found that humans are rather unsurprisingly, uh, unwittingly changing the landscape around them as well. So Tina Arredondo and her colleagues from Portland State University found that the spread of an invasive grass species was actually being carried out in large part by humans who were accidentally carrying seeds of the grass as they moved along local waterways. This issue marks the beginning of a very important area of research, Johnson said. It will allow us to understand evolutionary biology more generally and to realize how important it is for humans and the environment in which we live. It also has important implications for understanding how organisms persist. Okay, 
So let's shift a little bit now to talk about a different kind of evolution. And so this is actually an ancient version of evolution, more specifically the ancient evolution of turtles. And so a newly discovered species of ancient turtle, which lived in the Triassic period around 228 million years ago, has been found in what is now southwestern China. The specimen, named Irhan Chochelis sinensis, uh, was quite large, but did not sport the characteristic shell we now associate with all turtles. This creature was over six feet long. It had a strange disc-like body and a long tail, and the anterior part of its jaws developed into this strange beak. It probably lived in shallow water and dug in the mud for food, said Dr. Oliver Rypel, a paleontologist at the Field Museum in Chicago. Eeyore Chochelis sinensis isn't the only kind of early turtle that paleontologists have discovered. There is actually another early turtle, which was with a partial shell but no beak. Until now, it's been unclear how they all fit into the reptile family tree. The origin of turtles has been an unsolved problem in paleontology for more decades, for many decades. Now, with this new species, how turtles evolved has become a lot clearer. Now, what's really interesting is that apparently turtles show this really interesting version of um, evolution. So basically different ancestral species containing different features that are found together in more modern species is referred to as mosaic evolution. And so not all of the ancient species have to have all traits of the modern animal. And so what they do have to have is simply the genetic ability to develop those traits. And so in some of the animals, those traits were expressed and you have shells and in others, other genetic factors were expressed and you had beaks. And then eventually you have a species that has both the shell and the beak but is still an ancestor of both of those other uh, species. And so that is really cool, actually. Um, that is definitely one of those interesting versions of evolution where it isn't just a straight line where you can sort of show that this animal led to this animal, led to this other animal, and then they split off into these two other animals, that there is this kind of uh, winding road to the modern turtle that these animals were on. And so basically, eventually, again, a species evolves where the different traits are all expressed together in a single animal. Uh, the new find settles another question of turtle evolution as well. They found that the skull of this large reptile places the animals within the diapsids, part of the same group that contains modern lizards and snakes. There had actually been some debate as to whether they were indeed diapsids or were related to more ancient anapsid reptiles. Um, and basically, the difference between them, uh, between anapsid and diapsids, is the number of holes in the skull of early members of those groups. Um, it's, it's just a sort of a technical term, but um, it does sort of split the two um, groups between sort of older, uh, less evolved, and uh, newer, uh, more complex reptiles. And so the ability to see fine details in the skull actually allowed them to definitively place turtle ancestors in the di diapsid group. And so apparently this was like a really, really, really well-preserved fossil. Um, you can see pictures of it. Um, I will post the uh, link to the article where you can see pictures of it. And it's pretty fascinating. And it's it's basically complete. Um, and again, I've, I've noted over the years uh, that 
fossils like that are very rare. You very rarely find fossils that are so complete and so well preserved that you can learn so many amazing things about it. So that is very cool. All right, we are going to take a break and then um, we're going to come back and talk about something that's a little bit serious, a little bit funny um, about a dolphin. And then we'll talk about a different dolphin that's less funny, more interesting. Yes, we're going to be talking about dolphins when we come back. Uh, So let's take a few moments. We're going to do some PSAs and show promos, and then we will come back and talk about dolphins. Okay, hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM, Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and newgrass music. Hi, I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. <laughs> Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for... Interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There, archived at weatherbeard.com slash out. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to gytnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. Okay, and we are back. 
And um, I just remembered to play that last PSA based on uh, a new report that's come out about how uh, STIs in uh, America have basically skyrocketed. And uh, so definitely you should be getting tested regularly if you uh, are engaging in sexual practices with someone that you either haven't been in a long-term relationship with, or even if you have been, still get tested uh, because you never know. And we actually, it's, it's becoming increasingly probable that not all STIs will be treatable anymore. Uh, there are some really kind of terrifying uh, drug-resistant versions of gonorrhea out there. And, uh, so yeah, you want to get tested as soon as you can and keep getting tested. Um, I personally think, and, uh, I suspect that if I look into it, there's going to be some pretty good data to suggest that a lot of this comes from the fact that unfortunately the policy of much of our nation towards sex ed in the last decade or two has basically been abstinence only. And the only thing that abstinence only sex ed teaches kids is, well, nothing. Uh, and so when you teach abstinence only, you're not going to have kids having less sex. You're just going to have kids having more unprotected sex that leads to STIs. And uh, not really sure how this doesn't make perfect sense to people, but of course I do, um, because they choose not to understand that for various reasons. But um, yeah, definitely do get tested and, uh, you know, don't put it off because, uh, there are some that will actually do very bad things to you. And so, yeah, and actually that kind of segues into our next story. Uh, so I want to talk for a moment about Zafar, the sexually frustrated dolphin. <laughs> Now, this is a great moniker for an animal, um, I have to admit, but there, you know, there's a serious issue here. Now, dolphins have many human-like traits. We love dolphins as a people. Uh, you know, they're highly intelligent, um, but they're also prone to more human-like things, including recreational and often violent sex. Now, Zafar hasn't hurt anyone particularly yet, uh, but a beach in western France uh, has basically been closed off uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. So apparently it all started off rather innocently uh, with him, you know, just interacting with boats and people in this uh, area of France. But then he began rubbing up against those boats and those people. Uh, he lifted a woman into the air with his nose and caused another swimmer to have to be rescued uh, when he refused to let them return to shore. And so the mayor of one of the local towns issued a bylaw that forbids swimming and diving whenever Zafar is spotted and has banned coming within 50 meters or 164 feet of the uh, aquatic mammal. Now, uh, there is at least one infamous story. I think there's actually at least two infamous stories of uh, sort of consensual quote unquote uh, sex between humans and dolphins. Um, but yes, quote unquote, because of course they may be intelligent, but um, yeah, I definitely don't think it's okay to uh, have sex with a dolphin, even if it seems willing. But um, yeah, I definitely think that it is the better part of valor to stay out of the water when there is a horny uh, dolphin out there because they can be violent and they can do it without even meaning to. Um, you know, that's the thing is that they aren't necessarily trying to hurt you, but when they're very excited, they can potentially hurt you. So uh, I think it's probably a wise thing that that mayor did and hopefully Zafar will find some better outlets for his uh, problem. <laughs> okay, so on a potentially uh, 
less funny slash dangerous note, uh, a Scottish dolphin named Kylie has been alone for around 17 years. At least alone around amongst dolphins. So uh, there haven't been any other dolphins that Kylie has been associating with. But the solitary short-beaked common dolphin, uh, which makes its home in the Firth of Clyde, appears to have learned how to make friends with a group of harbor porpoises. Now, even though they are uh, related, dolphins and porpoises are basically cousins. They're not, um, you know, they're not the same species. They are, uh, they are definitely distinctive species. And so since around 2004, he has been spotted in the company of various porpoises. And it now seems that he's even learned how to mimic the sounds the porpoises make to communicate. Several cetacean species, such as bottlenose dolphins, belugas, and killer whales, have the ability to change their acoustic repertoire as a result of interactions with other species. University of Strathclyde PhD research student Mel Cosentino noted in a statement. Now, dolphins tend to use broadband clicks with peak frequencies below 100 kilohertz, while porpoises make narrowband high-frequency clicks with peak frequencies around 130 kilohertz. And so the researchers basically listened to hours of Kylie's vocalizations and found that they routinely make clicks with peak frequencies above 100 kilohertz and as high as 130 kilohertz. And does this more often when they're around their porpoise Companions. Porpoise is a hard word to say. <laughs> this vocal learning ability has mainly been observed in captive individuals, and few cases have been reported for wild cetaceans, Cosentino continued in the statement. If further analysis shows this to be the case, it would be the first time a common dolphin, either in captivity or the wild, has demonstrated an ability for for production learning, where it has learning learned to imitate another species. Now again, uh, and somewhat luckily, I think, there doesn't seem to be any indication uh, that Kylie is trying to be amorous with any of uh, their newfound companions. So <laughs> uh, no worries there. Okay, so let us switch gears now and uh, talk about a few stories from the world of archaeology slash anthropology. Now, this first one is about the famous Franklin Expedition, which was one of the several expeditions in the 19th century that sought to find the fabled uh, Northwest Passage. And so basically, they were trying to find an Arctic way to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, there's actually, an, I think, Nova special or a Secrets of the Dead special, something from PBS, uh, but it's actually on Netflix right now, and I watched it recently, and it is about the Franklin Expedition. And so one of the famous theories about the demise of Franklin's crew is that... Um, they were actually poisoned by lead, uh, either used to seal the cans of their food or in the pipes within the ship. And so that has been something that people have been interested in for many years. Now, a little bit of background. Two ships set out in 1845 from Britain, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. And they were led by Sir John Franklin, uh, hence the Franklin Expedition, and uh, featured 128 crew members. Unfortunately, none of them would end up surviving the trip. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the backstory because that documentary does a really good job outlining it. Um, and so you should definitely watch it if you have Netflix. Uh, probably can also get it on PBS. Um I think it's called like the ghosts of the Arctic or something like that. But if you look for Franklin Expe Expedition and documentary, I'm sure you'll find it. 
And so um, I do want to talk about that lead poisoning possibility. Uh, This is actually one of the possibilities for what happened with some of the uh, Antarctic expeditions as well. So uh, it, it isn't out of the realm of possibility that this would have been something that happened to them. Um, I think the the Antarctic ones, they ended up having trouble with scurvy uh, because I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but weird thing um, in the history of sort of science and nutrition, people figured out what caused scurvy and were able to treat it. And then at some point they forgot <laughs> and then people started getting scurvy again. And then eventually they re-remember, they re-figured out what to do about it. And I'm not sure if this happened once or twice, but there was a period where basically uh, in, I think, the uh, 18th or early 19th century where people basically forgot how to cure scurvy. They forgot uh, that using fresh fruits, uh, citrus fruits, would give you, uh, not that they knew about the vitamin C, but would give you whatever you needed in order to not get scurvy. Um, But that's a different story for a different day. Let's get back to lead. And so a new study published in PLOS One suggests that the lead didn't actually play a pivotal role in the deaths of the crew. So a research team from McEwen University in Edmonton, uh, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, and several other uh, Canadian institutions, probably with equally awesome names, um, examined three different aspects of how lead should have affected the sailors uh, had lead been the cause of their deaths. So the first thing was that levels of lead in the sailors should have varied. So those surviving the longest should have had the largest amount of lead present in their bodies. Second, bone formed during the final months of the sailors' lives should have had high levels of lead contained within microstructures of the bone. And third, bone samples should show higher levels of lead than those of contemporary bones from comparable samples, such as a different population of 19th century British naval uh, sailors. Now, the researchers used (laughs) newly excavated remains from sailors stationed in Antigua to compare to those of the Franklin expedition. Now, interestingly, those uh, Antigua uh, remains were actually being studied to see if rum or the way that rum is distilled could have been causing lead poisoning. So in order to compare the two sets of samples, the researchers used confocal x-ray fluorescence imaging and apparently this produces really amazing high resolution 3d scans of materials and in fact the resolution goes down to 20 microns which is extremely small Uh, the researchers found that those who lived the longest did not have substantially different levels of of lead than those who died early They also found that while there were appreciable levels of lead in the newly formed bone, the hypothesis, quote, was only partially supported in that evidence indicated exposure, but it was not markedly elevated for most individuals. And finally, they found that when compared to the Royal Navy uh, remains from Antigua, the research, quote, did not support the hypothesis that the Franklin sailors were exposed to an extraordinarily high level of lead for the time. Now, there were some odd findings, nonetheless. Uh, Some people had much higher levels of lead than others. Uh, And currently, we don't really have a good explanation for why that was. However, the overall results impressed Russell Teichman, who is a professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Periodontics and Oral Medicine, who is apparently an expert on the various ailments afflicting the members of the Franklin expedition. And so he told Gizmodo that the paper was, quote, very well done, uh, but again pointed out that there is more room for investigation, uh, especially a in trying to uh, discover why some of the members were exposed to higher levels of lead. 
So what did actually happen? I think we can all probably guess. Um, I would suspect that their problems probably multiplied as time went by. Tamara Varney, a co-author of the new study and a member of Lakehead's anthropology department, told the CBC, um, which was the Canadian Broadcasting Company, uh, their food would have been limited, so they would have been starving. They would have had nutritional deficiencies, and any health problems individuals would have gone would have had going into the expedition that maybe weren't a problem at the time, I imagine as time went on, those would have become more magnified and manifest. And so basically people with tuberculosis, people with developed scurvy, people developed all sorts of problems um, and eventually died. Uh, and also many of them probably died of simple starvation. And basically, uh, as noted in the documentary, it seems that the expedition just had really bad luck. They apparently set out at the worst possible time, with the years around the expedition being some of the coldest and harshest, uh, basically for like hundreds of years on other side, on either side of that period. And basically, they would have gotten trapped in the ice much more frequently, so they wouldn't have been able to move as fast. And uh, it just would have been freezing cold and they wouldn't have been able to go anywhere or do anything. So, yeah, they just apparently had some really bad luck. Okay, so on the other side of the world, there has been a recent discovery of rather huge proportions in China. So a 4,300-year-old city, which includes a massive steppe pyramid of at least 230 feet in height and spanning 59 acres at its base, has been excavated recently at the Bronze Age site of Shimao. Now, the pyramid was decorated with symbols of eyes and anthropomorphic faces. Now, the researchers suggest that this may have endowed the stepped pyramid with special religious power and further strengthened the general visual impression on its large audience. Now, the area, which we don't actually know the ancient name for, actually boasted a city which flourished for five centuries and at one point would have encompassed an area of 988 acres, which would have made it one of the largest in the world. Now, the 11-step pyramid was lined with stones, and on the topmost level there were extensive palaces built of rammed earth with wooden pillars and roofing tiles, a gigantic water reservoir, and domestic remains related to daily life, wrote researchers, including Li Jiang, a professor at the School of History at Zhangzhou University, Zhaoyang Sun and Jing Xiao, who are both archaeologists at the Shangxi Provincial Institute of Archaeology, and Min Li, an anthropology professor at UCLA. <laughs> Evidence so far suggests that the stepped pyramid complex functioned not only as a residential space for ruling Shimao elites, but also as a spa for space for artisanal or industrial craft production, they noted. And so they found a series of stone walls uh, surrounding both the pyramid and the city, and those walls would have featured ramparts and gates suggesting that the city was uh, well defended, but that also that parts of it were highly restricted in their access. Throughout the complex, pieces of jade were inserted between the blocks of the structures, which again may have helped imbue them with religious significance. Now, the remains of numerous human sacrifices have also been found at the city, especially around gates. The victims may have been residents of another site to the north called Zukagu. Morphological analysis of the human remains suggests that the victims may have been related to the residents of Zukagu, which could further suggest that they were taken to Shimao as captives during the expansion of the Shimao polity, the study says. 
Now, the site of Shimao has been known for many years, but until recent excavations, it had actually been considered to have been part of the Great Wall. Uh, there's a section of the Great Wall nearby, and they just assumed that it was part of the Great Wall. It was only once excavations had begun that they realized the site was much older. And so the findings actually push the the findings at the site actually push back the origination of many of the symbols associated with the emergence of Chinese civilization. So it's a pretty big deal. Okay, so one more story before we wrap up. And uh, if you really enjoy listening to the sound of my voice, I will be uh, guest starring, I guess, uh, or at least engineering on civil politics tonight, I'll be filling in. So if you want to hear more from me, uh, you can stay tuned for civil politics. Even if you don't want to hear more of me, you should still stay tuned for civil politics. <laughs> okay, so let's finish off with one more story about uh, an ancient discovery. So we're going to move back again across the globe to the island of Crete. And so it was on Crete recently where a Greek farmer discovered a 3,400-year-old tomb from the late Minoan era, which contains two coffins and dozens of artifacts. Now, the tomb had been hiding beneath the uh, farmer's olive grove in the southeast portion of the island. Now, as you can imagine, this area being especially rich with ancient archaeology, this isn't exactly a unique way to come across such remains. Farmers are often the ones who find such remains in the uh, sort of greater Greco-Roman homelands. So in the islands of uh, Greece and Crete, in uh, Italy, all of these places, a lot of times farmers are basically hoeing their uh, fields and they're like, oh, look, it's another uh, ancient tomb or something like that. Uh, luckily, this farmer was scrupulous. Not all of them are, unfortunately. And as soon as he realized the find was important, contacted the local heritage ministry. And so, again, the tomb contained two coffins, each with a single skeleton and two dozen pots with colored ornaments. Now, apparently a broken irrigation tube had made the ground soft, so when the farmer attempted to park his truck in the shade, it caused a hole to open up in the roof of the tomb. According to the ceramic typology, and according to the first estimates, the tomb can be dated to the late Minoan 3A to B period, approximately from 1400 to 1200 BC, the ministry explained in a statement. Now, tombs that haven't been disturbed by looters are sadly rare, so archaeologists are very excited to excavate and examine the tomb extensively. It would have been carved into the region's soft limestone and consisted of three carved niches with an entrance sealed by stone masonry. The coffins, called lanarks, were in excellent condition and embossed with ornamentation. The skeletons are both male, and the quality of pottery suggests high status. Lenarks were not coffin-shaped in today's standards. They were actually small enclosures that resembled chests. The bodies would have been tightly crouching in position, uh, much like Inca mummies, for instance, in order to fit in the box. Hopefully more can be learned once a proper excavation has taken place. Okay, so that is everything for tonight. I will be back next week again with an interview. So do stay tuned for civil politics. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.